What do you imagine somebody's come up to you and has asked you, what will heaven be like? What would you say? You don't have to be a Christian to answer this question. Latest uh, census kind of survey results seem to suggest that 60% thereabouts of Australians believe in life after death. So it's pretty likely that you have some idea. What would you say? What will heaven be like? Well, I recently surveyed the internet and I reckon most answers that people give fall into one of two categories, either boring or surprisingly specific. So let's have a look. Here's the first one. This is Nicholas. Uh, And Nicholas says he'll sit around bored as hell listening to the heavenly choir all day and looking enviously at all the sinners having fun in the other place. Um, Here's another one. I can't stand the thought of the endless tedium to float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp. It's also terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity in a place like that. And I think those two opinions pretty well uh, sum up what somebody in today's society thinks of when they think of heaven. Now, some sort of disembodied existence with uh, kind of sitting in the clouds, sitting around with nothing to do but strum a harp. And that conception of heaven, it isn't just held by those who aren't believers. You want to know the scary thing about the second answer there up on the screen? That's from a Bible-believing Christian pastor. So you have a whole swathe of humanity, both non-Christian and Christian, who think that heaven is going to be as boring as hell. So that's one subset of the answers. What about the other, the surprisingly specific? Well, here's George. George thinks that there will be healing work, inspiring scholars. I'm assuming that's because the uninspiring ones will be in hell. um, (laughs) Hanging out with my friends who are into languages and making multilingual jokes. Here's Benjamin, a bakery, and a vacancy for a baker to run it. But this one is my favourite. This is from Thomas, a well-travelled and well-read Christian. He says he's going to visit the dinosaur zoo. He's going to sail on the Titanic that never sinks, chat with prominent figures who never have a busy appointment schedule, get tons of real answers that are always honest, hang out at the super library... And also travel to any place in the universe. So it looks like, if we want to head to heaven, our options are that we'll be bored out of our minds or we'll be making multilingual jokes in a bakery with dinosaurs. (laughs) Now, despite the range of answers that we have here, ranging from the mildly biblically based to the wildly speculative, they all have one thing in common. Can you see it? Not a single one mentions God. And therefore, none of them can be true. We are at the end of the semester and at the end of the book of Revelation. And it's here that we see John's final vision, a vision of the new creation. And it's held out to Christians both then and now living in these last days as a promise and as a reward. That if they just hold fast to Jesus and endure persecution, resist temptation, then they will get to live there forever and ever And what makes it so good and so desirable and so worth enduring the pain of this life for and resisting the sin of this life for is the fact that God will be there. And so the purpose of today is to help you look forward, not to heaven, but to the new, physical, restored, perfected creation where we, with our resurrection bodies like Jesus' resurrection body, will live materially forever. So that's what today is about 
And we're going to begin by looking at the new heavens and the new earth. Looking there in chapter 21, verse 1. Now, just before we get in there, though, um, shouldn't have got you to lock down there. My sister's recently bought a house, uh, and I found that was something really interesting as we kind of went through that process. When you buy a house, there's generally two stages in that decision-making process. First of all, there's the listings. You look at the listings on the real estate websites, and they give you some pictures. They give you a floor plan. They give you a list of features like aircon or swimming pool or panic room, whatever it is that you're particularly looking for. And then that helps you narrow down your, your options. And then from there, you go to the second stage, which is the open house. You go and you get a tour. You get a feel for the space. You check the panic room doors, just make sure they're working. And it's from that point that you can then make a decision about whether or not you want to buy the place and live there. And what we actually see in these final chapters of Revelation is a real estate agent showing John not a new house, but a new heaven and a new earth. And we see that same stage process happening. So in verses 1 to 8, you see the listing. It's the general overview, just the, the primary features. And then in verses 9, all the way through to chapter 22, verse 5, we get the tour. Okay? And we're going to go and visit a house today. Are you guys really excited about that? I am. Let's go on the tour. Uh, but before that, we need to check out the listing and work out whether it's worth turning up on a Saturday morning instead of sleeping in. So, verse 1. Let's have a look. Chapter 22. The first thing that we see is that John is not seeing a vision of heaven. So, mind psych, the introduction was completely designed to misguide you. He's not seeing something up there. He's seeing something kind of down here. He sees a vision of the new earth and the new heaven. And it's not some ethereal, disembodied existence in the clouds. It is a material, rock-hard creation. And just so you can, you can put aside any idea that we'll be in the clouds with a harp, uh, we're looking things things to do, uh, it's really important to understand that that is actually one of the things that's being indicated here. Our destination in the next life is a created, material existence. It's like the one we experience now, at least in principle, but as we'll see, it's much, much better than what we have now. Now, the centerpiece, it seems, looking here at verse 2 of this new heaven and the new earth, is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And John sees it, verse 2, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. If we remember a couple of weeks ago, we've seen one other city in the book of Revelation, and that's Babylon. Now, Babylon was described as a prostitute. She was filled with corruption and death. But here, the second city, God's city, the new Jerusalem, is described as a bride. She's pure, she's beautifully dressed for her husband. And in verse 3, we find out who that husband is. John hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And I want to say this is probably the most significant verse in today's chapters. Because it makes a claim that up until now in the Bible has not been possible. Now, if you remember, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, God creates man and woman in his own image. He puts them in the garden to work and to keep it, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so the idea was that in the garden, they together, as they created humanity, would grow this garden out over the known world, and in doing so, bring order and God's rule to everything. But we know the tragedy of the Bible, don't we? In Genesis chapter 3, very early on in the story, they sin. And so God kicks them out of the garden. He bars them from the tree of life. And the significance of that moment was not the physical separation. The significance of that moment was the relational separation. Because from this point on, God and man cannot dwell together. 
The classic example of this is in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is brought into the presence of a holy God and he yells out, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And so from the point in the Bible in Genesis 3, right at the beginning of the story, we see that our sin prevents us from dwelling with the holy God. And so the great story of the Bible is how God in Jesus Christ will cleanse not just us, but cleanse his entire creation of sin and so restore it to such a way that he can then dwell again with his people. Now, as Christians, as we read the New Testament, we know that this reality has already happened spiritually for us. Because when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus, God comes to dwell among his people by his spirit. His spirit cleanses us. He is with us always. But that work is not complete. Spiritually, we've been renewed, but outwardly, we're still wasting away. And so even now, we're waiting for a time when God returns to remove sin from his world, our flesh, the world around us, so that we can live and dwell with him in intimate and unhindered fellowship. And what this verse, this important verse, verse 3 is saying, is that with the recreation of the heavens and the earth, that moment is finally come. And look at what results from God dwelling in the midst of his people. First of all, we see that it means the removal of all that is suffering and evil. So verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Second, it won't just mean the removal of all that is suffering. It'll mean the giving of eternal life. Just as he removes death from the old order of things, he makes things new. That's verse 5. And then in verse 6, he offers to the thirsty water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Now, don't get hung up here. Don't, Don't be too literal. Basically, what it's saying is that if you dwell forever with the one who is the source of life, then you will live forever too. And so as we look at the listing of Jerusalem and we kind of try to track the key features of this particular piece of real estate, there's only one thing on the list. God lives here. And that should make you want to go to the tour. Because it means that anybody who dwells there with him will no longer suffer. Instead, living with God as our God, we will experience life and blessing forevermore. Just imagine that for a moment. Can you imagine what that would look like? No pain, no crying, no mourning, no suffering. Goodbye mental health. Goodbye, chronic fatigue, crippling physical illness. Ladies, it means no more period pain. I went there, but it's true. <laughs> guys, it means no more man flu. It's really not quite the same, is it? You guys just need to get over it and get a bit more empathy for your sisters and what they have to endure. But, but can you start to see the, some of the implications of what it could be to live in a world where you are no longer tired, no longer frustrated, always at peace, at rest, full of joy and happiness, dwelling in a place with no threat anywhere. You can finally let the guard down and enjoy not just your own existence, but existence with the one who was brilliant enough to make it for you. That's what this property is all about. So that's the listing. Let's go on the tour. The tour is a bit more chaotic. There's a lot more things going on here, so we're going to need to put our, our, um, our heads into gear at this point. Uh, and as we go on the tour, I think we see four things. They're there in your outline. 
Um, we'll work through each one of them. The first thing that we see is that God's people are described as a city. Uh, so let's have a look at some of the vital statistics. Let's start in verse 10. Uh, John is taken away by the Spirit to a very high mountain. He again sees the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, so it's clearly a repeat performance, but now we're getting more detail. Uh, verse 11, it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like a very precious jewel. And a little bit later on, we're told that this entire thing is made of pure gold. Uh, verse 12, uh, it has a great high wall with 12 gates. And on those gates are the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There's three gates on each of the four walls. Uh, and the walls of the city are on 12 foundations. And on those 12 foundations are the names of 12 apostles. And each foundation we see a little bit later on is made of a precious stone. So jasper, sapphire, agate, and it goes on. You don't need to be particularly familiar with, with all of those jewels. But here's where things get really fun. Have a look at verse 15. The angel pulls out a measuring rod and he starts to measure the city and we discover it's a cube. It's 12,000 stadia in length. It's as wide and, and high as it is long. Uh, and if you want an artist's rendition of what this looks like, here you go. Um, that's the cube. It's about 2,200 kilometres across. Uh, it's basically a giant gold cube. Now, the kind folks at BibleInfo.com have given us some more technical specifications, so I thought I'd, I'd throw this one uh, out at you. Uh, to get a sense of scale, the International Space Station um, orbits around here. Right? Big cube. Now, <laughs> now I'm sure the question we all have is this. Are we all going to live in a giant gold cube in the new creation? And oh boy, do I want to go down this rabbit hole. Um, because it means that people start talking science. And so the atheists come out of the woodwork and they say any object that size is going to trigger earthquakes. It's going to throw out the rotational spin of the earth. It's going to collapse under its own gravity. And then the Christians, the faithful Christians come along and they say, yeah, well, God can make a bigger earth. Or, or, or he can make gravity different. Uh, and totally fun, but entirely pointless because look at what the angel says to John in verse 9 come I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb now who's the bride it's the people of God Christians the church and so when John sees Jerusalem coming down out of heaven as a giant cube he is not seeing a literal city in which God's people dwell he's seeing a symbolic representation of the people themselves. So, I don't know how that makes you feel, being described as a blockhead, but we'll, we'll see how, how this one goes. Chapter 21, it's telling us what the new creation will be like, but it's not doing it literally, which means we have to do the hard work of working out why this symbol, why this image, why the cube. And that leads us to the second thing we see on our tour, which is the city described as a temple. Now, it's time for a select history of biblical squares, because this is what we need to do to understand what the heck's going on with the cube. So let's go on our select history. First select history is in Exodus 28, where we see our first square, the priest's breastplate. Now, actually, I did not update that thing, did I? So what we're going to do is I'm going to pull up Ezekiel, uh, um, Exodus 28, and we're going to go nuts. That's from last week. Good thing to know, though. Exodus 28, verse 15 what do we see? Well, we see that the biblical square is made out of um, some sort of metal. It's a span long and a span wide. It's folded over double. Uh, if we look there in verse 17 of Exodus 28, 
This is the really interesting thing. We see four rows of three gems mounted in gold settings. And each, on each of those stones, what we see is the name of one of the tribes of Israel engraved on it. Now, the gems aren't direct matches, but where else have we seen this? Well, this is the 12 foundations of the city that we've just seen in Revelation 21, right? Each of them made with a precious stone, each of them bearing the name of an apostle. First biblical square. What's the second biblical square? Well, it's the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple. This one's in 1 Kings chapter 6, and it is up on the screen there for you. Uh, have a look, verse 20. The inner sanctuary is 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high. It's overlaid the inside with pure gold, verse 21. The entirety of the temple is overlaid with pure gold. Verse 22, he overlays the whole interior with gold, 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 gold. You get the picture, right? It is an entirely gold cube. And what is it? It's the Holy of Holies. The place where God dwelled with his Old Testament people, but the place where only the high priest could go and only when he'd made a sacrifice of blood for sin. And when he would go into the Holy of Holies, he would bear on his chest a breastplate representing the entirety of the people of God. That's the closest they could get to him. And yet that's where they met. Third and final biblical square. And this is Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel chapter 40, verse 40. Chapter 40 to 48, it's the big chunk right at the end of the book. Uh, let's have a look at how this section begins. Uh, have a look there, it's verse 2 and 3. In the visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, just like John in Revelation 21, on whose south side were some buildings, looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand, just like John. And what happens in Ezekiel is that he proceeds, this man with the measuring rod, to measure the end time temple that God will build when he restores his people to their own land at the end of history to dwell with them forever. And as we read those eight chapters, the measurements roll out, the temple, the temple building, the inner court, the most holy place, they're all square. The city that the temple's built in is square. And the city has 12 gates named after the 12 tribes of Israel. And the name of the city, well, we're told in the last verse of the book of Ezekiel, the Lord is there. So what's the point of the giant gold cube? It's a temple. But it's a temple in which the innermost part, the Holy of Holies, the golden cube, the only place that God dwells has expanded out to cover the very limits of the city. And so what we're talking about here is God's people, not a literal city, remember that. And so God's people are the city, are a temple. They are now the place where God dwells. Now, why the specific measurements? Well, in Ezekiel, the measuring signified perfection. And Ezekiel was to go and take that blueprint that the angel gives him and describe the temple and its measurements to the people of Israel so that they would be ashamed of their sins when they considered its perfection. And so when we're going back into Revelation 21, we see 12,000 stadia wide, long, high. What are we seeing? We're seeing the number 12, a number for God's people, times by 1,000, a symbolic number of perfection. And he's using that to describe the shape of God's people. Here is a place where there is no sin anymore. It is perfect. God's people are perfected. And so God dwells with them. So that describes the city 
We see God's people described as a city. We then see God's city described as a temple. And here's where the metaphor gets really fuzzy. You ready for this one? Verse 22 to 27 of chapter 21. We see God's city described as a city. Don't know whether that bends your mind. It does for me. Uh, It begins by saying that there's no temple. And as we keep skimming our eyes down from verse 22, we see some other things. There's no temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, who is Jesus, are its temple. We now have direct access. There's no sun or moon because the glory of God is giving it light. So again, we see the immediate unfiltered presence of God. It's still with Jesus as the mediator because he's the lamp, but there's no distance. Verse 24, the nations walk by that light. The kings of the earth bring their splendor into the city and the gates are never shut. And the only reason you ever shut a gate in a city, by the way, is because there's an outside threat. But there's no need here because in verse 27, nothing impure enters it. Now, the key piece of information, I think, here is to know that um, what's happening here in this vision is basically ripping off Isaiah chapter 60. Every single one of these images, the light, the gate, the nations, all of them are in that chapter. And so just as Ezekiel describes the glory of the end time temple, in chapter 60, Isaiah describes the glory of the end time Jerusalem. Now, remember, we're still talking about God's people here. So what do these verses tell us? Well, it shows us a picture of a people who are dwelling in complete security, complete purity, and complete diversity. Because the nations who are traditionally God's enemies are now part of his people. And instead of rebelling against him, they are coming into the city as his citizens, glorifying him whose glory is shining across all of his people. And so this is a picture of the end time gathering of the nations to the gospel of Christ. That great multitude, if you remember, in Revelation 7, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. It's a redeemed humanity dwelling in the presence of God. One final description. And we see this in chapter 22, verses 1 to 5. We see the city described as a garden. The tour continues. We now move into the city itself. And we see there in verse 1, the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street. On each side of the river, there's the tree of life bearing 12 crops, yielding fruit every month. The leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations and there are no longer any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. And what does this picture remind you of? It's the Garden of Eden, right? Just like the original garden, there's a river, there's a tree of life, there was God, humanity is serving Except here, the river flows not just from the garden, but from the throne of God himself. And it's flanked not just by one tree of life, but what seems to be at least two, maybe more, on either side of the river, bearing crops in and out of season. And where the first garden, or at least man in the garden, was cursed, this Eden is now inhabited and there is no curse. It's a return to Eden, but not as it was, it's better. Now, if that all feels like kind of like an M.C. Escher drawing where parts kind of don't match up because you've got a people who are a city, who are a temple, but there's actually no temple. It's actually a city which has a garden. That's okay. Okay. It's not meant to make spatial sense because what we're seeing here in this final vision is all of the major threads of Scripture coming together in this one place, which is God dwelling with his people. Certainly not going to give you a literal description of what things will be like, but that's not the point of the vision. The point of the vision, this kaleidoscope of biblical images, it swirls around together to tell us one thing. Everything that God has promised, everything that he has been working toward throughout the whole history of humanity, 
has finally been accomplished. And you want to be there when it happens. Because that's where God is. The source of all blessing and all life. And the reason that you want to buy the house. And that brings us to the end of the book of Revelation. So if you give me a couple more minutes, let's cinch this deal. The final word on the final word. It's not in your outlines, uh, but it is in your Bible. Revelation chapter 22, 6 to 21. It's the conclusion of the whole book and the whole Bible. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but when you read it, it repeats three things over and over again. And you see them in the first couple of verses. So let me read to you from verse 6. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophet, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Then Jesus interjects, looks, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in this scroll. And then John jumps in, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. The three things that are repeated again and again and again in this last section of Revelation. The words of Revelation are trustworthy and true. The one who keeps the words of Revelation will be blessed. And Jesus is coming soon. And those three things help us understand how we can enter into the end time city of God. Because what's the primary message of the book of Revelation? Hopefully you've picked it up by now. It's been the same application each week. Cling to Jesus. When people persecute you for his name, don't be a coward and throw in your faith. Cling to Jesus. When the world tempts you to sin, don't be impure and, and, and indulge your sinful passions. Cling to Jesus. And because this message is a trustworthy message, you know that if you do that, you will one day walk through the gates of the city and dwell with God forever. This is Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, and I'll add for clarity, in the blood of the Lamb, those who repent and put their faith in Jesus, cleansed from their sin. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. But notice the next verse, because it tells us something about the only part of the city that we haven't looked at yet, and that's the outside. So verse 15, outside are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And the subtle warning there is that that is the place that we will be cast if we are not holding on to Jesus at his return. It is an eternity of suffering and punishment without the blessing of the presence of God. But the comfort and the hope and the encouragement of Revelation is that Jesus is coming soon. So verse 7, look, I am coming soon. Verse 12, look, I am coming soon. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And that threefold repetition in this last section tells me something. It tells me that Jesus is coming soon. <laughs> and what that means is that I only have to hold on just a little bit longer before I walk through the gates of splendor and be with my God. And if you are a Christian, that is true for you as well. And so we pray with the rest of God's saints, the close of this book, at the close of this semester, hopefully for not much more time. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.